and welcome to Molly Movie Club. I'm Anna Rutberg. And I'm Casey Muratori. And today we begin a new month, which is AI slash cyborg slash artificial life. Is there any actual movie that's about artificial life, though? Well, would, or are they I mean, all do, AI cyborg I would movies? say, I mean, I feel like Blade Runner is, artificial life is the best way of describing Blade Runner, actually. I guess that's true because they're, a cyborg would have to have, like, electronics. Cyborg is, is like... That- is like half human, half machine. Machine. Okay, so yeah, I guess I guess then Blade Runner is the one. Then Blade Runner would be yeah. the one because they are sort of alive, made out of these parts that are all organically grown, like the the eyes well, and, and, the, and whatever. I feel like the whole sort of thing with Blade Runner is the fact that these replicants are alive and. And going to die. And going yeah. to die, and and that's like that's a very human thing to be dealing with. Yeah. So today's movie, speaking of Blade Runner, is Blade Runner, the final cut. There's a lot of cuts of Blade Runner. We are talking about the final cut. I've actually only ever seen the final cut, but from what I hear, some of the other ones are way different. Well, the original theatrical release has narration, has voiceover narration, which is an awful idea for this movie. Yeah. But, you know, other than that, all of the cuts are okay, and they're not that different. The final cut is presumably the best one. It's been a long time since I've seen another one of the cuts, but I think they just cleaned stuff up. You know, they edited some of it to look a little bit better and things like that, inserted a scene here or there of, like, uh, stuff that kind of just makes it a little bit more Mm -hmm. solid. But there really wasn't – it's not like, oh, it's totally different. And it's, you know, one's an hour and a half and the other one's three hours or something. It's like – it's they're pretty close, actually. Okay, so basically – If you just skip – the the theatrical release is the only one that's like, this is a completely different film. Can you even find that one anymore? Sure. I'm sure it exists. Interesting. It might be interesting to see sometime. It's got Harrison Ford talking, like, through a lot of it. Yeah, Yeah, I'd be curious about that. Anyway, Blade Runner, the final cut – Fantastic movie. One of our favorites. Uh, Indeed. I, I think, I mean, I've seen this movie, I, like, this is probably my most watched as an adult movie. Like, I think as a kid, I probably watched other movies, like, more times. Mm-hmm. But I feel like as an adult, I have seen this movie more than any other movie. Just because, like, anytime it's screening at, like, you know, at a cinema or something, I'll go see it. Yeah. Uh, it's It's a pretty remarkable film. It is. I think one of the most remarkable things about it is that... It continues to get better on every single rewatch. So every time you watch it, you notice something new. Everything is there for you. It's just sometimes you need more than one viewing to, like, notice those things. It's all there, though. Well, I I mean, in terms of, like, the scenes, yeah. The the plot is a little wonky in this film, which is, you know... it, it The script has issues, let's put it that way, which is just kind of a... A bummer about this film fortunately it's not the good part of this film anyway like the good part of this film is the visuals and and the like uh, the sort of incredibly tangible feel of inhabiting that world Mm -hmm. which is something that i rarely respond to in cinema like a lot of times when people say that that's what this movie is about um you know, I always mention Roma because I couldn't stand that movie. But that's what people are saying is that filmmaking style is about. It totally doesn't have that effect on me. I am bored out of my mind uh, with those films. Mm-hmm. But this film manages to cross that threshold somehow and actually make it feel like I'm really in this weird sort of like future cyberpunk. Cyberpunk's probably the wrong word, although I use it because 
most cyberpunk fiction borrowed this world after the fact. Yeah. Like the it's always raining neon Tokyo mm-hmm. fused kind of visuals are like what became standard. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that vision of the future is really kind of interesting and bold and new and very different. And now it's super played out and done all the time. But when Blade Runner came out, I don't think anyone had really seen anything anything like this. And Blade Runner still stands as the by far best version of it. I, yeah. I've never seen anyone even come close to the, capturing the, it. The only thing I've seen that's close is Akira. Mm. I think Akira gets the Akira is the only other movie I've seen that gets the uh, that similar vibe to um, Blade Runner. I would agree with that, but of course it's animated, so it's a very different experience. Totally, but it. but yeah. I, I think it's the only other movie that I think captures that it same does. feeling. I agree. I, I I like I agree. Like the most impressive thing about Blade Runner, and I think there's actually quite a few impressive things about it. But the most impressive thing is the I guess it's you'd call it production design. It's just the the way that everything looks. It's so immersive. It feels literally like you are transported to another place. Like it, I know all movies claim to be doing this, but like this movie is visionary. It feels like it was shot on location. Yes. That's the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. It feels like it was shot on location in the actual future. Yes. L- the, right? It's a, it's just like, yep, that, I don't know. And like, it's like a little bit fantastical. It's not It's not really like any real place that exists. And it's got this great combination of like old feeling things and new feeling things. The dark, It's so dark, like not just visually dark, but like thematically dark. Everything is... is you know, you see, you're always seeing that thing, the off-world colonies, like, reminding you that this sucks here. Like, everyone who's here is, like, the lowest of the low. They're yeah. the people who couldn't leave right. and go to a better place. And it's that you feel that that sort of despair. The movie is so bleak and depressing, and everyone in it is depressed. Like, Harrison Ford's character is so depressed. Yes. Um, and, and I also love the feeling of the expansiveness of this entire world like it feels like there's an entire universe of stories to tell in this world you get you get little touches of like of hinting at like there's a there's this whole like spacefaring kind of thing that we don't ever get to see i mean even roy batty says this he's like i've seen things you people wouldn't believe well and they go to so many different places that you see that are just totally unique and different it's like there's the guy who makes the eyes and his whole thing there's that club where that where sort of the he's not really a mob boss but like kind of this this sort of you know, local uh, fixer kind of guy is there at the bar. Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, the the people who make the synthetic animals, like the yeah, snakes. the market, stuff. yeah. There's all that stuff. There's the Bradbury, that weird old abandoned building that where J.F. Sebastian lives by himself. And there's a movie theater across the street playing some films. You get all of these, like, hints at... All these things that exist in this uh, world. It's a and living world that, that other people are going about and living their lives. And you're not seeing those lives, but you, you feel like they're You feel they're like they're really there. And in that way, I guess I would say you could think of this movie as the 100% polar opposite of the new Dune movie. So in the new Dune movie, if you remember, which I trashed for an hour mm-hmm. uh, when we did the thing, I had nothing positive to say about it really. Um, this is exactly what I thought was missing from that film. It was purporting to tell me about this future place and these different cities that people lived in and different planets and different lives, and they never showed any of them 
ever. It felt like an uninhabited future where there was only like one person in one room at any given time <laughs> in the whole city, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, even, I mean, you bring up that movie directed by Denis Villeneuve, yeah. the, he, who directed Blade Runner 2049. Same problem. Which also has this problem. Same problem. Which I think is almost more interesting to compare because it's supposedly in the Blade Runner universe, this universe yes. that we've... We just haven't covered that movie, but yeah. Sure. But I'm just saying, like, it's 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 a pretty remarkable contrast. It, and if you watch that movie, it feels like a completely uninhabited future as well. And it doesn't so, feel like the same. It's set in the same world as not. this Blade Runner movie. Yet. It's just claims it is. And when you look at this film, it's the exact opposite of those films. It feels like the entire world is filled with people doing things. Yeah. It's and that every building has an inside. Right. Mm-hmm. And every car that's going by on the street is going somewhere. It's just absolutely remarkable how much work was done to get this feeling of a real place. And, you know, I think there's a reason that I, I've i never seen another movie that does this. In a lot of ways, I would make a comparison between uh, Blade Runner, honestly, and Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. They both just said, we're going to find a way to get basically the actual sets we need for these films, whether that's traveling to the desert or building a fake street, which they did for Blade Runner, the entire thing, uh, in a lot to create all of these facade stuff. And then we're going to have as many extras as it takes to fill it up. Like we're not going to try to do some kind of trick so it doesn't feel like there's really an army of camels running. We're just mm-hmm. going to have an army of camels yeah. running across this shot. And the result is just people can't even seem to match it, even with CG techniques. Mm-hmm. They just can't match Yet, for whatever reason, technological or effort or we just don't have the ability to really nail that yet with synthetic stuff, it just doesn't work. So when you watch these other films, they feel small. They feel like they're only taking place in the foreground. And when you watch Blade Runner, it feels like there's people for miles and that this street really exists. And I don't know. We just can't seem to duplicate that. The other thing that's incredible and that really contributes to that feeling is is the set design and Mm -hmm. costume design, all that stuff like all the things the extras are wearing yep. are, are like, it's all different and there's it's part, all strange. Th- there's a part in the club where he's standing there waiting for the girl with the mm-hmm. snake to come mm-hmm. through. Total throwaway scene. There has to be seven or eight girls walk by him, each with completely fantastical outfits yes. that you would be psyched to have as your main exactly. character exactly. in another movie. Exactly. No, it's it's and it's like every character you look at has this. It's crazy. And it's every crazy. and the env- and every single set and environment has this. The level of detail, the number of things. I mean, think like look at Harrison Ford's apartment. Deckard's mm-hmm. apartment. It's so dense. Mm-hmm. With stuff. It's amazing. And it's just and it and it it immediately hits you as like this is the this is the apartment of someone with depression. And I mean and that's how LA feels in this movie. It feels like the city of of a it's a city of depression, right? There's garbage, there's stuff everywhere. It's an it's amazing. Like the level of detail. I mean, I I there's no other movie that I can think of that has ever gotten close to this level of like commitment to the the world of the movie. That doesn't exist. Yeah. That, that they couldn't just go like they they had right, to make everything it feels yeah. like alien. It feels like something like the costumes, right? They're like they're dressing in ways that we don't 
that are unfamiliar, yeah. right? The, the clothes they're wearing, even the design of the buildings. Like you look at the Bradbury or whatever, like these giant pillars. There's multiple times you have these like giant pillars coming down to the sidewalk with these strange designs that aren't like aren't designs of any buildings that we know of, right? right? The architecture is foreign to us, like to our 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 eyes. But it feels like okay, it's just been there forever. It's it's so it's so crazy that they pulled this off so well. It's it's insane. So I I'll, I'll make a meta comment um, about this movie because I you know I I feel it's worth noting because I feel like it's a very different film in terms of how it was made for uh, when we compare it perhaps to other great films and how they were made. Yeah. Uh. You know, from everything I'm able to glean from, you know, biographies or, you know, just information snippets here and there about how movies were made. When you look at something like, you know, 2001 or stuff like that, you get a very sort of distinct sense that it's more or less Stanley Kubrick or whatever doing his thing. And it wasn't necessarily all planned by him in advance. There is a lot of, you know, sort of fluidity to these sorts of things. But it's very much like people doing what he tells them to do kind yeah. of a thing, it feels like. Yeah. And that tends to be kind of the way that a lot of great movies were done. Yeah, it's true. When we think of a lot of the, the classic great films, they are very much like director-helmed pieces that are we're gonna do terminator for example yeah and it's kind of like yeah james cameron kind of just does this movie and Mm -hmm. it's not that there aren't tons of people who are playing a really important role in that but they're under his direction it's clearly the vision of one person in a way yeah this movie is like really not that and i think that that is a pretty interesting thing to me because I think it's one of the reasons this movie feels so unique when you watch it is because nobody I'm I'm fairly convinced based on reading a lot about this film that nobody who was making this movie had any idea what movie they were making at all literally none of them every single person was doing something different and it just so happens that they all came together to make something that probably no one person could have conceived of ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, from what I can tell, you know, uh, Ridley Scott didn't even really know what was happening with the screenplay. It was like other people were working on that. <laughs> like, they're, the guy who was doing, they had a guy who was doing uh, all of their, like, vehicle design, and he mm-hmm. was just kind of doing his own thing. He wanted to, like, work on what, because he was an actual industrial designer and was working on what the cars should actually be. Uh, apparently, like, Edward uh, almost Edward, Edward James, Edward James almost. almost. yeah. He was totally into this role, but didn't have like the script for him really wasn't written and they didn't know what his lines were going to be. So he was like making stuff up about like what his character would be like. Like it just sounds like everyone was thinking about a movie because they didn't really have very much direction. And Ridley Scott was meanwhile like totally focused on like building the locations or things like that, Mm -hmm. which of course was crucial to what became in the movie. Yeah. But just does it, it sounds to me like this was just. Everyone really wanted to make a movie. Yeah. That movie they wanted to make was in their own head. And no one was really saying what that movie was up front. But for whatever reason, because everyone just gave it their all and was really invested in making this film, 
Um, this is what you got. I mean, right down to the fact that the most famous line in the movie was ad-libbed. Right. Yeah, right? The t- like Tears and Rain was was just... Uh, it's the most brilliant piece of writing in the entire film. Rucker Howard just, Rucker said, Howard it. just said it. And this is why I say, like, I don't feel like anyone had this movie in their head. It's a movie where all these people had different things they were trying to do just randomly. And it just so happens that each of them did that really well. Mm-hmm. And the result is, like, I feel like it's really an amazing collaboration at at bottom because nobody had this idea. I really don't think they did. The screenplay was written by three different people. They constantly were keeping to change it because it was all messed up. It, it, I don't know. I'm just, I just want to point that out that I think the reason this movie feels so different when you watch it is because it was not – it was almost like a bunch of people getting together to collaborate to sort of make a film organically. Mm-hmm. Almost like one of those experimental film projects where they do that but doesn't come out very well. Yeah, I mean I think, I think the magic of it is that nine times out of ten – that's not not going to work. It's not going to work. Like th- something happened here, something kind of magical happened. Yes. That led to a really remarkable end product that that you couldn't you couldn't replicate if you tried. Uh right? Like you couldn't you couldn't tr- make Blade Runner again. Well, they did and they failed, so. Yeah, because so I say you can't. <laughs> like it it something magical happened in the making of this movie that can happen with creative projects. Yes. You you just get really lucky. You picked the right people and Gave them the creative freedom. I don't know that another movie has ever come together like this. It's so very unusual when yeah. you read about it. Yeah, and the closest thing might be something like a Star Wars where, you know, other people were given a lot of latitude to do things, but it was still, mm-hmm. it was still kind of like a, a George yeah, Lucas Star Wars idea is still very in general. Jo- it's still very heavily like George Lucas. It, it was very like, heavily him. You know, maybe Empire Strikes Back would be a better example. I mean, say. But, but still, it's just like it, this one was really far down that whatever you want to call that dial uh, between, you know, strict auteur, I'm telling you everything that you're going to do, which is maybe like a James Cameron movie, right? All the way towards like weird experimental film where people are just ad-libbing and we don't really know what's going on. Blade Runner is way closer to that than any blockbuster style film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would ever be, I think. Yeah. And I th- I think that it it makes the viewing experience also very unique. Yes. Just because it's not it doesn't feel very traditional. It feels experimental the the structure of things, the the level of like trust it sort of puts in the viewer to like figure things out because like I remember you know, the first couple times I saw this movie, I mean, you're always struck by the visuals of this movie from the very first thing, right? Like, you can't not watch this and think, wow, this visually is absolutely insane. Well, we should also mention, in addition to all the things we're talking about, the lighting and shot oh, composition man. is, you know... Some of the best that's ever been done. Some of the best that's ever been done over and over and over again. It's like, there's multiple shots you could just hang on a wall it's 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 very much like 2001 in that respect where there are shots that are literally just like this is better than most paintings that people have ever made i always think of it's just a it's just a simple shot but i think it might be the first time we see roy batty he's in like a phone booth yeah i mean it's just it's like a remarkable shot the the colors and the lighting and it's just it's just a simple shot of him it's like it but it's so it's so stunning. There's um, also one of my favorites is when uh, Decker is walking into J.F. Sebastian's apartment and there's like a shot where he's kind of on the right side of the frame mm-hmm. and some of those like toys are oh, on the other yeah. side. And it's just you look at this shot and you're just like, it's so 
beautiful. It's just like this shot alone is so amazing. And it's just you have that feeling so many times yeah, the, in this like film. Every, basically everything in the Bradbury, like that when oh he uh, when he walks in and like that 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 set alone feels like something totally found in the real world like it's just something they stumbled across i think part of it was right they because yeah. they can't really build stuff like but it's it's entirely. just but yeah i don't remember exactly where that set came from i've read this book i should mention anyone who cares about this first there is a book that is like i don't want to say it's three thousand pages but it's <laughs> something like that it's like this huge freaking book that has everything you've ever wanted to know about Blade Runner in it. There was this L.A. reporter who was just obsessed with Blade Runner. And it has, like, interviews from everyone who had anything to do with Blade Runner. <laughs> and it has all of this information about the set. So we know where that set was. I just forgot. But, I mean, it's stunning. And the way they lit it, uh, the way they shot it, I mean, it's it's remarkable. But I just feel like, aside from aside from the visuals, which everyone mm-hmm. will appreciate, I, I think, you know, on a first viewing, I found... I found it confusing. Like, I didn't really know what was going on. Mm. And every time I've watched it since, I've picked up on something. Because a lot of it's pretty subtle. Why he's going here or what he's doing is not, like, explicitly stated or something. Mm. But after watching the movie so many times, like, I... I understand it all very clearly. Like, it's not actually that hard to understand, but it it's a movie that you really need to be, like, actively mentally sort of participating in yeah it absolutely does repay your sort of diligence in watching everything that people do like little just little things like i think i didn't quite understand you know on the first couple of viewings it's like so he he goes into this this place and there's like the tub with like the scale in it i'm like why is he here but it's like oh no okay we know why yeah He's listening on the way there. He's listening to the the that's Leon right. interview where he says the uh, the, the hotel the tell, number, and yeah. that's where we are. But it's like it's not obvious, right? Like it's it's asking the the viewer to pay close attention. But it's there. It's there for you. But I think it's those little things, and there's a lot of that in the movie that on a first viewing you don't maybe catch because it's it's very overwhelming. The movies visually and the audio too. Like I I actually really like the Vangelis soundtrack i think it it gives it this really good feeling it's got this weird like dream like kind of creepy yeah it's creepy the main problem i have with this movie uh is just the screenplay could have used a lot of work it's a bummer i i think the i mean the way it was written was a disaster it was written first by one person and then whose name i regrettably forget and then hampton fancher came over came on and took it over i think and that screenplay didn't really work and then uh david peebles is that his name he's the the guy wrote unforgiven actually so oh peebles is it peebles Peebles. um so very good screenwriter i mean unforgiven's you know one of one of those screenplays it's like if you're going to rank best screenplays of all time it's probably in there right Mm -hmm. in fact i guarantee you that if you go looked, if you went and looked at like a WGA list of best screenplays, I bet it is in there. I'm not saying yeah, that yeah. hypothetically. It's like we kind of know <laughs> it is. Everyone knows it is. Um, he had like two weeks to rewrite it or something and, and you know, kind of cleaned it up, but it doesn't quite work. The main problem with this movie is the movie in terms of this series of events is written as if the main character, Decker, does not know what any of the replicants look like. I mean, he walks into a dressing room with one of them in it, and he could just pull out his gun and shoot her. 
he knows exactly who she is. He's seen literally her dossier and her head spinning around. There's no reason for him to be searching his, her dressing room for anything while she's alive. She could, he could just literally pull out the gun and shoot her in the head while she's showering. But he doesn't do that as if he's not sure that that's the replicant, which would be the case if he never had a picture of her, a good picture of her, right? Well, I mean, but, I think I think thematically that's also like the point is that you can't tell the difference between a replicant and a human. Like that's an important yes. core element of the story. So yes. it's like, yeah, you don't. I mean, I, it, it never really occurred to me that partly because I think the pictures of them. But at the beginning, he literally has like no, no, spinning I, heads I understand, of it. But like, and, you know, even as a viewer, yeah. I didn't necessarily connect that face to this woman. Like people look pretty different in different contexts. And he you, has to be sure. Like, he has to be sure before he kills. I mean, Rachel at in the beginning asked him, like, have you ever accidentally killed a person? Yeah. Like, I think I think that's part of it, right? Is like he he wants to be absolutely sure that he's got the right person here. And so, you know, when you look at what's happening in the film, it's like they they have this situation like, oh, we've got a the, the very first thing that happens is he has to go over to Tyrell Corporation to do a void comp test on a Nexus six. And the question is why? You don't need to do a Voight Compton on a Nexus 6. You already know exactly what the people look like. It's the same as if you were doing a human manhunt, right? You know you don't need a way to test to see if those people are humans because you know exactly what they look like. And as far as we know in this future universe, Nexus 6s aren't like patterned after some other humans who are also running around and you might accidentally mistake one for them. They are much like humans. They look unique. So if you find out that one of them lives in this area and you go there, the one that looks like them is them. We generally just assume this. We don't have to worry about arresting the wrong person, right, when we go to a house. Well, and that happens all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> not visually. Only because they don't know what the person looks like mm. or something and they go to a random house and, you know, arrest or shoot somebody who's completely unrelated, right? I mean, I just, it can, so, be, it can be hard to to associate a person you see in real life based on a photo you saw once. I mean, dude, I've been in the airport multiple times where they like, they like check my ID and I like don't look like the person. Like, this has happened many times where they're like suspicious. I'm just saying like, you a have. A photo isn't. I'm just saying they know what the person looks like. They know that she has a snake. And that she works at this place. It's like very clearly this person. There's not going to be a second person with a snake who looks like that at this place. It doesn't make any sense. So the film is written as if they weren't sure what these replicants looked like. There was no way to ID them. But the first scene of the of the film where Decker goes to see Bryant undercuts that. It's showing him way too much information information he shouldn't have it feels more like it's it's that scene is design is showing the audience something not deckard and i feel like that scene was kind of a mistake i don't feel like they should have done it um it's not that great of a scene anyway and i really just feel like the screenplay needed to be tuned a little bit better to remove that kind of weird aspect of it because it's a much better film if you don't have that part uh in there right but anyway, so there's some weird things about the the script that happened that way. Uh, there's a couple other ones that don't make any sense. I have no idea how Roy Batty knows that his name is Deckard. I, I don't know why he would know that. Nobody has told him that. He doesn't know that Deckard is chasing him. When does he say his name? Uh, so there's a part where uh, 
Roy Batty comes into J.F. Sebastian's apartment and uh, Deckard shoots a gun at him Mm -hmm. and he dives across the like a a beam of light Mm -hmm. down a hallway. Mm -hmm. Uh, We then see Deckard move forward and he's holding his gun out against a wall. And before Roy Batty shoves his hand through the wall to grab his arm, he says, come on, Deckard, like this. Mm. It's like, how did you know this guy's name? There's no way you could know this guy's name. You've never met him before. All the people who have interacted with Deckard before have been killed by Deckard before. We've never seen any news articles that mention Deckard's name, and I don't know why they would. So it's like... How does he know his name? And so there's stuff like that that happens in this movie where you're like, okay, you guys forgot that these two people don't know each other, right? Uh, And there's things like that that happen that are just kind of a little annoying. So another one, for example, is we are never told why at the end of the film uh, the having to hunt and kill Rachel order got apparently rescinded. Because Edward James almost comes out of the taxi cab, magically shows up, which maybe is plausible. We don't really know why he would have shown up then, but maybe there was some, you know, we do know that they knew Deckard was there because he was in his police car and the police come and they ask what he's doing there. So Mm -hmm. maybe Edward James almost just came to see what was up, but I don't know. I don't know why he would then- You kind of get the feeling throughout this movie that- the Edward James Olmos character is like tailing Deckard all the time. You get the feeling that he's always just kind of around the corner there, like watching him. Like he's being tracked or whatever. So, you know, it's not entirely impossible. So I'll spot them that that could have, there could be an Mm -hmm. explanation of that that makes sense. But he comes out and he throws him his gun and he's like, you know, good work or whatever, you know, you're done. But he doesn't say you still have to kill Rachel but that was the last order we heard was that he does. So he kind of he just says well, too bad like she won't impl- live. It's implied, like well, it, you know, it inter- it's interesting because it, it. I feel like there's like intentional ambiguity there a little bit because that guy obviously knows that Deckard is a replicant, right? Yeah. I mean, he leaves him the unicorn. Yeah. So it's he possible, might be just saying might, like, he "Hey, might... you can. I'll let you two go off on your own." Yeah, or or he's or like, you know. He's also, we, I mean, that guy is not a Blade Runner, right? I mean, he's just like a... We have no idea. We don't really, don't know. We don't really know who he is no. or what his role is. My sort of impression was perhaps he is like the handler for the replicant, sort yeah. of. Deckard the replicant. It could be. And like so many people, if you get to know a replicant, right? Right, you're, right. They're just a human and you probably don't want them. It's like him saying, like, I'm, I'm giving you a shot to try to... To, yeah. to survive. I like that interpretation because it, it at least makes that part make sense. It's like he's basically giving Deckard permission to run away from Brian. Exactly. Effectively. Exactly. Yes. Which, and again. He's like, you fulfilled your duty. You did the thing we asked you to do. You get an opportunity yeah. to, to, to escape. This is one reason why I sort of say I don't know that anyone knew what movie they were making when they made this movie. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure actually, although they may say so now, when you read about the making of this film and especially interviews with Edward J. Zalmos, I get a feeling that nobody knew what this guy does, really. Like, yeah. like in other words, I, I have a feeling that they that the filmmakers also don't necessarily know. And a lot of times that can be bad 
because you know that you get fr- into Frozen Two territory when that happens. Mm-hmm. So but go sometimes, go to an example of like yeah. making a movie when the script when you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes, as is the case with Blade Runner, you skate all those lines and maybe at the end you kind of see, oh, this could be a place where this person does something ambiguous. And the fact that we didn't know what was happening the whole time is actually a strength all of a sudden. Yeah, I think so. In in Blade Runner, the ambiguity is sort of an asset. It's an asset. You can interpret this movie in lots of different ways and none of them are wrong or right necessarily. Like, I mean... I remember, you know, the first couple of times seeing this movie, I thought it was sort of ambiguous whether or not Deckard was a replicant. Watching it now, it's like he obviously is. It seems somewhat like he is. There are some cases where it's like, is he really? Um, but, you know. But at the end of the day, like, I think there's enough in it where where it's like, I mean, the most explicit thing being the unicorn. Like, that's pretty, pretty clearly like, you know. <laughs> it's pretty clear. But at the same time, you know, it's one of those things where you're taking the the confirmation one, but not the other ones, because it's like, well, Edward James almost also leaves like all these other animals so that don't have anything to do with anything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't really know, like he could have just made a unicorn that time. When you watch the movie through thinking that Deckard's a replicant, and this could be just random, like not yes. intentional, but there's like little little expressions, little reactions, things like that, that suddenly read differently. Like, I mean, even at the very last shot, like when Harrison Ford like picks up the unicorn and looks at it, he kind of does this like yeah acknowledgement thing of like i thought so yeah yeah and like that seems so explicit to me like he's just he he now he thinks he's a replicant he's been suspicious of it the whole time you know it's part of the reason that he's probably drinking and and yeah. he, you know he's he's very suspicious right? well and he has the photographs yeah he's got these in the fo- same yeah. way like he the same way that those leon photo- has the, that leon yes, has them yes. and that rachel has them yeah, they like cling on to these photographs yeah and so the only reason that it kind of seems like deckard isn't a replicant and one of the reasons why i think again sometimes the fact that i don't know that anyone making this movie really thought it through because nobody had the movie in their head it was just kind of like came together it creates a bit of a problem because it's like, okay, well, if you had a Blade Runner replicant, why is that Blade Runner replicant not strong? Why wouldn't you have used one of the strong replicants like the Leon style replicant? Well, you don't right? want him to know he's a replicant, I guess. But he wouldn't. I mean, he wouldn't presumably go kill replicants if he was obviously a replicant, right? Like the whole thing is you need someone who doesn't know that they are. I guess. I mean, either way, I'm just saying like, so some of those things don't I mean, for example, make Rachel sense, too, but... like presumably Deckard replicant is the same sort of model as Rachel. Like she also didn't know she was a replicant, right? right? Like I think that's they're both part of this like newer line of replicants it could that, be. that are so human. There may be, maybe they can't make strong ones. I don't know. But anyway, point well, it being... could just be that their goal is not to like their goal is to make them yeah like this this particular type is like supposed to be able to perfectly blend in with humans it is not supposed yeah. to be abnormally strong or anything right it's just like it is more human than human or whatever they said although and again a slightly different take on that is just like well okay who made him then because it obviously wasn't Tyrell because Tyrell doesn't seem to recognize him which is a bit weird like you would think there would be some acknowledgement or something that would happen. Like, if the movie makers knew this and the character was informed, Tyrell would probably have some kind of a... He would be a little bit more awkward because no human who isn't a trained actor 
can pull off a I'm pretending this person is a human, but I really know they're a replicant mm-hmm. thing that well. And he doesn't with Rachel. He kind of doesn't really have the same interactions with her. So, so I don't know. I Like I said, I don't really care about this stuff. I don't. It doesn't really diminish the movie for me. But I do think it's like, I don't think anyone really knew. They can say they knew. But they didn't know. But I mean, when they I, were making this movie, they didn't actually, in each individual scene, I don't believe that someone actually briefed the actors and said, okay, you know that he's a replicant, but he doesn't know he's re-. Nobody said that. Yeah, they yeah. just shot these scenes off the paper and like it came out the way it came no, out, I, I'm pretty sure. I totally agree. It feels that way and it 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 lends the movie this ambiguity that I think makes the movie better. Probably. It's like if the movie had been so explicitly like Deckard is a replicant, that would have been le- a lot less interesting. Probably. And so while I think most movies will fail if they have this sort of like flying by the seat of your pants kind of like method of filmmaking where you're just kind of winging it, like most movies will not succeed. Doing yeah, the- that, something happened here, magical and it worked. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why it's a very unique film is just because at the end of the day, I don't think you can make this film on purpose. No. It just doesn't work because there's so much sort of, like you say, there's ambiguity there that's coming from the fact that they don't really know. Mm-hmm. And that's genuine. So, like, that ambiguity isn't someone trying to fake something ambiguous. Right. It's someone where they people really don't know, and it comes through, and it comes through well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, as I said before, if they had known whether or not Deckard was a replicant really clearly and sort of, like, telegraphed that through the scenes and stuff, it yeah. would have been worse. Probably, Because yeah. the whole point is that you don't know. Like, yeah. you don't—everyone would wonder, like, are you a replicant? Are you a human? Yeah. We don't know. There's no clear cut way of knowing except maybe the void contest so it's like i think that that ambiguity is really critical like it makes it so much better and the fact that you can interpret the movie in multiple ways it it makes the viewing experience like really satisfying um so other notable things about this movie uh that i think are worth noting so the sex scene in this movie Mm. Which is not really a sex scene, but the romantic, the prelude to the sex scene. We don't see a sex scene per se. Yeah, it's but. it. That's yeah. That's a. It's an interesting scene. That scene, <laughs> I think, is like really good and the kind of thing that most people would not be able to make today. For example, it's like extremely sort of. Uh, I guess you would say unnerving, mm-hmm. and also it. It very well captures what you could plausibly believe would be two replicants doing something that they've never actually done before, but both believe that they have. Mm. Does this make sense? Yeah. In other words, like, in theory, if you believe that Deckard is a replicant and we know that Rachel is a replicant, they both have probably been implanted to think that they have had sex at some point when they were 20 or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But they haven't ever. They've just been living in their apartments as replicants, not realizing that they are not doing anything other than like their basic like daily routine that they've been sort of corralled into. And so the idea that you put two of them together and they're going to have a romantic relationship in some way, they don't really know what that is. And they both have, like, memories that 
have something to do with this and they've have emotional sort of development that's stunted. It's like children almost. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, I actually really liked that scene because I'm like, it felt actually like that. It felt like very uncomfortable and weird, Mm -hmm. but that I could believe would be what would happen in that circumstance. I mean, I think the other thing too, is even if you don't look at it in that way at all, Deckard is not a good person. That's true. He's cruel. Like when when Rachel first comes to his place, you know, he's not nice. He's extremely mean to her. He's very depressed. He's an alcoholic. Like he's not a good person. He's not a nice person. That's true. It's not out of character at all for him to force himself on someone. Like that is that is within that character. And definitely. you know that he has been conditioned to be someone who hunts down not. Not just replicants, but like his own kind, basically, because he is a replicant. It's well, the same as a yeah. human hunting down humans. And at this right? point, he doesn't he doesn't know he's a replicant, or he he is he is suspicious. I think at this point, you know, and maybe that's causing some anger. But right? he doesn't know. Yeah, he, he doesn't, doesn't know. know. But he, I think he's suspicious at this point. He's Possibly. wondering. And you know, to him, I think there's there's almost like a lashing out. Like this, she's a machine. She's she's you know she's not a human. You can treat her however you want. Because she's a machine, and there could be some some sort of anger there. Like I am, I am not like this. Right, right? Like, I'm, not like, a I'm taking it out on her. Because, I can tell her what to do because she's a machine. It and doesn't I'm matter. Not, right, and well, I'm not. And, and that sort of insecurity, right? The right. insecurity of like maybe I'm one of these two might cause you to treat a replicant badly, right? And and also, I assume again, this is me filling in stuff that they probably didn't think about, but I assume too. Like party said, Deckard's not a nice person. Part of that is presumably that, like, hey, this is supposed to be someone who hunts down and kills replicants. So whatever they had to do to, like, create that persona probably included implanting memories and whatever their, you know, sort of way that they do that that's never really fully explained is going to be implanting, you know, a certain amount of thuggery, right? Like, this Mm -hmm. person's not supposed to be a good person. And it's someone who has to go around killing people. And someone has to go around killing people, and they want to be good at that, right? So it makes perfect sense, again, that, like you say, this person isn't going to be a Prince Charming-style person when it comes to romantic things. And we see that over and over again, like, say, although at the end, he kind of comes around and ends up being someone who's, like, very concerned with protecting Rachel, which, again, is... Pretty actually accurate, even for humans who behave that way, like Mm -hmm. a domineering human in a sexual capacity often will then end up doing that sort of protective behavior as well. Protectiveness is 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 sort of part of the same type of it is like persona traits. It's like a it's like a sort of possessive possessive. Exactly. Um, so I mean, it really I, did feel good, and I just want to commend them for that because I don't really know if this is any of this stuff is what they were thinking, but it comes off as extremely believable to me as opposed to just making something palatable, right, which is different. Making yeah. something that people will want to see instead of making – like they didn't do that. Yeah. They made the thing that's probably what would have happened, and that's really honest filmmaking to me, and I appreciate that because no one does that anymore. Well, and, and this – I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, like everything about – this world, this LA in the future here is bleak and depressing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's some of the darkest parts of humanity, right? Like the people yes. who are left here are the dark people, right? Yes. They're the people with, with problems, medical problems, psychological problems, yes. just oh. financial problems, drug addiction, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and, and if you didn't have those problems 
but you're stuck here. You probably will have them now, right? Yeah. And so it's like we are looking at the darker side of humanity. Yep. And Deckard is seeing that all the time, and he's part of it, right? Like yep. he lives in this this world. So yeah, no, I think it it just adds to the feeling of bleakness and darkness and and like kind of despair. Like that this is that in this world, romance isn't isn't romance, right? It's something darker. Um, I mean, I suppose you could also look at the scene a little differently too, which is like, you know, Rachel obviously does want to be with him. She is telegraphing that she wants to be with him, right? Yeah, it's, but, it's, it's but conflicted, she, obviously. But she, but... the conflict in her is like, I am a replicant. I am unworthy of of love. I I shouldn't be. You know, I I can't do this. I'm just a replicant. Like I can't have this thing that I want. And maybe he's stepping in and saying, like, no, you can have the thing that mm-hmm. you want. And that's and because he's kind of a not a good person and he's kind of a violent, more violent person. The way that he does that is not appropriate you know, appropriate to our modern sensibilities. But the actual thing that they're communicating to each other is he is encouraging her to go with, do the thing that she wants, right? I would also say that, uh, you know, this, this is why I say, like, I feel like it's honest filmmaking. Yeah. Because people, like, no longer are willing to make films about the things in humanity that we would rather not acknowledge. They just aren't willing to do that anymore. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate because what is the point of films other than to acknowledge what's actually true yeah. about humanity? You know, I mean, I guess there are other points where, you know, you know, you could think of Star Trek as a way of trying to show like better options for humanity in the future or things like that. So it's not just the only one, but it's an important one. And I think the other thing that's true here is like, look, you know, a lot of times these sorts of things are very messy in that particular situation. You could easily imagine a, a thing where Rachel actually is looking for someone violent because she believes that she is going to be killed and hunted. And she's looking for someone violent who will demonstrate that violence because she needs someone to protect her because she doesn't have that ability, right? Mm-hmm. It's an ugly thing that could be happening there. But it could be true, right? Yeah, there's a really lot of ugliness. ugly things yeah. happen in humanity that are simply ways of behaving that people might like to believe don't happen, but that do. And this is a very plausible one, right? And it's something that you may be unsettling, but it doesn't mean it's false. And so it felt like it was played really honestly to me. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that. And I wish we saw more things like that in movies because I feel like if they're played honestly, then your reaction to them is also honest. Like people are probably not like, oh, that was really great that that happened. Yeah, no, you don't right? come away from that scene with a good feeling. No, you it don't. It is not a romantic scene. Um, so it, it comes it comes across as pretty unsettling as well. And so, and you know, Harrison Ford played it as very unsettling. The look on his face is not even pleasant. The, even the music, when he pins her against the wall. It turns dark for a second. Yeah, very dark. It does. It, the music reflects the, the, the tone. It is, not, yeah. it is not a sweeping romance. Like even though we get the saxophone thing that's like and before like it's building it up like I think the music and and other thing parts of the scene like she takes her hair down and stuff is cueing into the cueing you into the fact that like Rachel is interested in Deckard in a romantic way like this is something that she wants yes it's not it's not like she is just a victim of of some monster here or something like right he didn't pick her up and carry her back to the cave or something like this it's like there, exactly. was, there she, was something going on originally yeah but she's there was for unclear, a reason i mean she right? came to the bar like that's why she was there he called her from the bar she's like that's not my kind of place and yeah. then she ends up showing up yeah so it really does capture the messiness that some relationships have 
you know, like we said, Deckard is not a good person. He's he sort of almost dips into the like unlikable main character territory a little bit. Um, I would say, in, in fact, yeah. one of the interesting things about this movie is that everyone's dark, like replicants, for example, are extremely sympathetic. They do bad things, but like Roy Batty, you feel really bad for him. Like you genuinely feel bad for him. He's scary. Like you're scared of him, but you completely empathize. Everyone in this film is a murderer, but they're all empathetic. Yeah. It is one way to think about it. Yeah. Like literally everyone in this film who you follow, besides maybe J.F. Sebastian, he's just the only person who's like really doesn't do anything obviously bad. And I mean, other than the fact that he makes weird genetic like clone people for his, his own, own like, amusement his, yeah so i mean is he really that good uh, so in general like in this movie no matter who you identify with mm-hmm. they're not good people i mean roy batty's crushing someone's skull with his bare hands uh so it's not like he's a shining example of a pleasant individual no, he's terrifying he's a really scary villain like in that last yeah. scene you are genuinely frightened of him he is yeah. very scary (laughs) so you know in general like no one's good there are no good people in this film including decker um maybe rachel is not really doesn't really do anything particularly bad i mean the only time she does something is she shoots leon in the head but he was trying to kill somebody so yes pretty easy to forgive so maybe rachel and that's about it uh everyone else is kind of a scumbag and it's like but all of their stories are told very, very well and very compellingly. You feel like they're all motivated by something and you can understand why they're doing what they're doing, whether it's Decker or Batty or Pris or, mm-hmm. or uh, Snake Girl's name. I never remember. I don't remember. Yeah. Even Leon. Right. Who yeah. we open with. You totally get it. Mm-hmm. You're just like, OK, you know. Well, and, and you and you I think the thing with the replicants is you recognize that, like, if you were in their position, you would probably do the same thing. They have nothing to lose. Yeah. They're and about no one, to die. And no one wants to die. And they don't feel any particular allegiance to humanity because humanity has treated them like crap. Well, I mean, so... I think there's a real gut punch moment uh, at the very end when Roy saves Deckard's life. When yeah. he grabs him and he says, you know, you know what it's like to live in fear. This It's what it is to be a slave, basically. Yeah. And that I feel like that feels like a gut punch when he says that. Yeah. Because, like, you've been frightened of him in this scene in particular. You've been looking at him at as, like, a villain. But then you realize, like, yeah, like, he's right. We see him as a human. We see him as a living, breathing, feeling creature. And he has right. been treated like a, like a machine or like a slave, you know. And so, you know, what he's doing makes perfect sense. There is no real reason for him to think that, that these people's lives should be spared. It doesn't matter to him. And it shouldn't because he doesn't really have any reason for that. Right. Uh, and also, he has nothing to lose because he's about to die anyway. So, you know, it's really kind of inconsequential at that point. So it makes perfect sense from his perspective what they're doing. And also part of that is, again, they are replicants. So their emotional development is odd, right? Yeah. It's not going to be the same as, you know, a typical human. It's going to be different. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that in a lot of scenes like they don't act exact. They don't really act quite like humans act. Right. And I I liked that. Yes. About the performances in this film uh, from Rucker Hauer, from Daryl Hannah. Uh, They do a great job giving that sort of uh, weird vibe very consistently. Yeah, I totally agree. They feel like human, but like there's something kind of off about them. Mm hmm. Yeah, all those little details, like, and I think you're probably right, it's like, 
those are the things that the actors brought to the to the roles that maybe maybe weren't totally there, but they gave it they gave it they gave it probably more than like the script asked for is my guess. Way more. I mean, if you if you go read about this, it's way more. I mean, like I said, between Edward James almost like basically inventing his entire character because he just really wanted to do something interesting in this film. I think it was, you know, it's it's a it's not a huge part and he was excited to have the role or whatever and he really tried very hard. Well, and and, and um, the end result <clears throat> is like he's extremely memorable in this movie. Very memorable uh and iconic wardrobe and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He was like really involved in all that. He like was really wanted to do something cool here because, you know, I mean any actor who gets a shot at something but you're working uh, with Ridley Scott probably like, excited you know, about it yeah. but you know not everyone is goes to work every day right and he definitely did and it sounds like he really put his all into it from that all the way to Rucker Hauer coming up with the most impressive line of the film it's just like yeah they were getting way everyone was massively over delivering on this film and the end result is is a really great film. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. The Tears and Rain line's ridiculous. Rucker Hauer is amazing in that movie. Yeah. His like physical presence, his performance, like just remarkable. I don't know. It's one of the best movies, man. It's very, very good. I could watch this movie again and again and again and <laughs> never get sick of it. Every time I'm I'm finding something new. I noticed something new this time. I, I remarked when we were watching yes, it actually. Yes, you did. Literally in the opening scene. I well not the opening scene the opening scene is actually Leon but the first time we see Deckard the entire time for some reason I've seen this film this is probably the ninth time eighth time I don't know how many times I've seen this film I think it's a lot Mm -hmm. I never realized that when Deckard was reading the newspaper he's waiting for a seat at the counter (laughs) somehow in my brain it was always that he was just reading the newspaper and then he finishes and walks to the counter to get some noodles but that's not what's happening <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. opening scene. He's yeah. waiting the for a seat. The guy waves over. At, wait, yes. Yeah. I, how did I miss this? But a guy like leaves one of the stools and the guy says, come on, come on. And for some reason, I think I I just never, I interpreted that as like him just encouraging him to come for noodles. Yeah. But then I realized this time it's like, no, duh, dummy. I think, I think that's part, not of, what's part happening. of the reason stuff like that happens a lot with Blade Runner is because I think there's so much to look at. Yeah. It's so like overwhelming. Uh, it is. That sometimes you're just not noticing stuff because, like, you know, when Deckard's sitting there reading the newspaper, you're looking like your eyes just darting all over the screen. And when the noodle guy is, is waving over, you're seeing that, but you're also seeing like a million other things. And so I think the density of information on the screen sometimes means that you're not actually looking at the thing that is telling you, like, the story, right? <laughs> exactly. There's there's so much going on in a lot of these shots that you just kind of feel. And also, there's another thing they did in this movie, which again, is just bizarre, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a neat aspect of it, which is that they wanted the future, for whatever reason, they wanted the future L.A. to be uh, effectively like, because their idea was like a future version of L.A. was like what they were thinking they wanted to do. They wanted the languages to be like all messed up. So like languages are kind of like intermingled Mm -hmm. and not everyone could speak every language and like they were kind of hybrids. Mm-hmm. So like that's why Edward Jave almost says some stuff and the noodle guy says some stuff and translates and whatever, but they don't actually sound like any particular languages because they're not really, they're like hybridizations of languages that don't really work. I was noticing that with some of the signs where there would be Japanese yes. on there, but then it would like 
it would just there'd be like some weird symbol or something like it just isn't quite right yeah and i (laughs) I think that was intentional they were basically trying to do this like what if languages what if we had some japanese and some spanish and some english and some whatever and it just kind of mushed together and evolved what would it be and so even down to something you'd never notice because you know i can't speak this language or whatever so i don't know it could be japanese for all i know or it could be chinese or i don't speak these languages but it's like no actually it's no language it's like this weird thing we made up uh and edward james almost apparently worked with a a language person for this as well like it just if you ever read about this movie it's nuts uh but anyway the result is great the thought put into what this future might be yeah and then executing it so flawlessly it's just we should mention sid mead i mean obviously a lot of this is his doing Um, but yeah, it just, yeah. Again, I think this is just a lot of people with a lot of ideas that they wanted to do. Nobody really coordinating particularly much, but coming together to just have this really nice, like somehow every cook added something to the pot, but it was came together to be a great recipe. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Delicious soup. Delicious soup. Indeed. So that's Blade Runner. That's Blade Runner. And, uh, I w- I think we can both say that it is in our top ten favorite movies. It's it's my favorite visual movie probably mm-hmm. of all time. Like I it, it it's easily takes I think the number one spot for just like things to look at. Yeah, I think that's it. Is there anything else? Any last any last thoughts or comments? I don't think so. I mean, it's a movie that you just have to see because it is yeah. so visual. Like, and I think the other thing too. To the other thing too is is like if you have the chance to see this. In a good theater, because yes. I think, you know, because it is such a is a visual experience, you know, if you're just watching this on like a crappy, tiny little TV, it's not going to feel maybe the way like the way we're talking about it. Right. You might be like, I don't know. I, I didn't get that. If like it, it, it's ability, important yeah. to see it as big and as immersively as possible, like a good sound system, a good TV. Like this is that kind of movie. Well, if there's if you ever have a chance to go see it at one of those fancy 4K digital big screen yes. places, which you know, probably don't exist that many of them anymore. But if you maybe if you live in a big city that has one, if they ever play a Blade Runner Final Cut, it's it's one of the it's it's probably like the number one movie I would say you want to see that way. Yeah, because it is so immersive and it changes the experience like qualitatively to feel so surrounded by it in mm-hmm. that way. Whereas a lot of movies, uh, everything's better if it's bigger in some sense. But they don't necessarily change. The feeling doesn't change as dramatically as this movie does. I've seen it in that format. And it really is a lot better to see it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think actually I didn't I didn't love, love this movie until I saw it in the I saw it at the Seattle Cinem- Cinerama. Yeah. The first time I saw it there, it blew my mind, even though I'd already seen the movie a couple times before. Like it it changed my entire feeling about this movie. Yes. I have one final comment, I guess, that I just thought of that I didn't mention and should mention. Okay. Uh, I also think that this movie shows how to color balance your shots. Mm-hmm. So a lot of shots in this film have very strong color composition. They are not monochromatic. Modern movies, when they want to do this, like the actual new Dune movie, I'm sorry, not Dune movie, uh, Blade Runner movie, that I did not like the cinematography of. Other people do. I have... No idea why. We've been over this on the podcast before. We don't. We're not huge fans of Denny Villeneuve. I just don't get it. (laughs) Those shots are color corrected so that there's basically only one color in the shot. Mm -hmm. This movie shows you how to do it right. 
there is a dominant color in a lot of these shots, but it's rich with other colors. Yes. And this is what makes a beautiful shot. I don't know why people like to see shots where it's literally just tinted blue. I don't get it. It looks ugly to me. That richness, having the gamut there is very important because it accentuates the actual dominant color. I don't know if people are going to these movies and they just don't like multiple colors in a shot or something like they want. Do you think there's an element I don't understand, of like, is this like a digital filmmaking versus shot on film thing or something? Well, I'm sure it has something to do with color grading because nowadays it's very easy to in color grading to, to change these things. So they would probably be less inclined to do it in the old days this way. But I don't know that there's any particular reason that digitally you can't do this same thing. Um, it's probably just harder because you have to actually spend some time thinking about exactly how you're going to, you know, color correct a thing for that if you didn't do it that way to begin with. But either way, this is, a for me, a go-to film for yeah. cinematography reference. There's a couple of them. Uh, I remember Road to Perdition was one that I've used in the past of, like, g- looking at how to do color comp for stuff. Mm-hmm. But this film is really just a brilliant study in color composition yes. for film. It's absolutely stunning. And there are so many shots that you can pull out where the use of color and lighting is just phenomenal. And you can learn so much by studying how they put it together. So I would highly recommend this as like, this is your color grading gold standard for like how they put these shots together. I shouldn't say color grading because it suggests after the fact. It's really during the shot that they're getting a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, color composition is the word I guess I should use. It's it's really worth looking at for that. If if nothing else, it is just an amazing reference for how to do that stuff right. Yeah. No, and I think contrasting it with the new <clears throat> Blade Runner is I mean, I think one of the reasons that we have I guess we haven't talked about that the Blade Runner 2049 the podcast. So we won't really we won't talk about it here except we for haven't. the fact that I think the fact that it is Blade Runner makes it even less like it makes it seem worse than it might actually be because yeah. <clears throat> because you're comparing it to the world that that exists in this Blade Runner, like the the world of the original Blade Runner. And it doesn't do any of the same things. It, it doesn't manage to capture that cluttered, messy, uh, populated feel at all. Yep. The world feels totally empty. It doesn't manage to do the color composition. It feels very monochromatic and heavy handed all yeah. the time. The shots are very bland. It, it does feel like they're Den- almost black and white, but then just tinted. It feels like Denny was the wrong choice because he likes to do big, Sparse. open, empty spaces. And Blade Runner is the opposite of that. It's dense. It's densely packed. There's so much detail and dirt and grime. And grime. No, it's and not like, clean. Like Denny loves clean, dripping water yep, yep. and mud and like all of these lots and lots of like. Uh, sort of uh, decorative elements, you know, all this stuff. It's like very textured. like Highly, almost over-textured. There's so much that you can't even Mm -hmm. focus on any one thing. Whereas Denny, as a director... Denny sparse, clean lines. It just doesn't work. It's It's the wrong They fight each other. It's the opposite. So it's not to say... Like, uh, people obviously like what Denny does. That's fine. But I think he's a bad choice for Blade Runner. It's... it's, If you like the original Blade Runner, I just don't see how you could like this one. It's it's the opposite. But maybe... You know, they were just trying to try and do something different. I don't know. But it, it does really seem like something that you would need a different director for. That said, I don't know who that is. I, I don't, don't know, know who's either. the director does know. that. I mean, I just don't think I, I think because of like all the things we've talked about, the way Blade Runner was made, you can't expensive. you can't replicate. Oh, my goodness. It. Anyway. All right. We've talked long enough. We love this movie. <laughs> yes. So next week, I believe, is going to be Ex Machina. 
which I've seen and you haven't, right? I've never seen it. So that'll be fun. Um, and then, yeah, the other movies are going to be Ghost in the Shell, the the animated version, I also haven't seen it. I have not seen it either. And ending the month with The Terminator, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Terminator is, you know, I mean, it's, it's again, in that, like, top ten. Yep. Tough to beat Terminator. And I guess, actually, I said that was the end of, month, end of the month. That's not actually true. There is a fifth week in June, uh, which we are, we're just going to randomly pick something, something we've been wanting to watch, it, not related to the theme, just because we need to fill out the month. So okay. we'll decide that when, when we decide that. What All right. That is. So in any case, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back next week with Ex Machina. Take it easy, everybody. Bye.